0: How is it going, ladies and gentlemen? This is Sean Barnes. I want to welcome you back to the Way of the Wolf. Our guest today is a gentleman named Evan Neerman. He has started a PR firm called Red Banyan, and they focus on helping organizations with public relations and then actually navigating through this world that we are faced with right now where cancel culture is a very real challenge. For those of you that have been listening to the show for quite a A period of time you understand that sometimes i'll steer clear of certain topics just for fear of being canceled because that is a very real challenge that podcasters social media influencers and business owners struggle with our guest today is going to help us figure out how we navigate through this stuff together so evan welcome to the way of the wolf
1: thank you for having me sean
0: All right, man. So I've got to know, this is a very challenging space for you to operate in. How did you find the courage to start doing this as a career and build a business in this?
1: Yeah, well, I've been doing high stakes and crisis PR for the better part of 20 years now. So the way I got started, everyone always wants to know this is such a, you know, a lot of people have never heard of crisis PR, or they aren't aware that crisis management, high stakes communications consulting is a thing. And they want to know, well, how in the world did you get involved in that in the first place? And it's super simple, actually. I was living and working in Washington, DC. So needless to say, there's plenty of crisis that starts, emanates from Washington, whether it's politics, business, international affairs, you name it, all of the above. And so, actually, I was working in my first job after college at a place that was in the advocacy space. And the organization was strengthening the relationship between the United States and Israel. And what ended up happening was amazing organization, high integrity leadership, some of the best and brightest and smartest people I've ever had the opportunity to work with. And that organization, through no fault of its own, found itself embroiled in a crisis. And so at the time, I was the highest ranking other than my boss who was the communications director. I was the in-house PR comms guy and they brought in an outside team of crisis managers. And I got the opportunity to work closely with them. And I decided after that experience, I was already looking to make a move and I realized this is where I want to go next in my career because it provides the opportunity to help good organizations and great people who find themselves in challenging circumstances. And it's a way to really come in, provide massive value, help them, and empower them to move past a crisis and get back to doing the good work that they prefer to focus upon. And so my, my entrepreneurial journey was a little bit of a roundabout, as is often the case. I left the world of advocacy and working for the pro-Israel lobby, APAC. Went to work at a small boutique, high-stakes, and crisis PR firm. Stayed there about a year and a half. At the time, I thought to myself, I really like the work. I want to have my own firm one day that operates differently and does things very, very, uh, with, a, with a totally different view of business in mind than the firm that I was working for at the time. I stayed about a year and a half. I left to go work at a startup in-house that was on the cusp of explosive growth. And I did the startup for about a year and a half and then decided, you know what, it's time for me to start my own thing up. That was the genesis of Red Banyan. So I started the business with no clients, no team members other than me. And over the last 12 years, I've been focused on building that business. And at this point, we're in locations across the US. We're generally regarded as one of the top crisis PR firms in the country. I've got 30 full-time employees spread out across every continental US time zone. And we've had the opportunity to work in close to a dozen countries at this point. So it's it's been ex- an exciting journey and uh, I think we're only getting started.
0: Man, okay, so there's a lot of things that you just touched on that I wanna dive into. One is the, I'm gonna say the drive or passion you found to add value and helping organizations navigate through a crisis. That is a tremendous value that someone like you and your company can provide. Because a lot of times business leaders, uh, large or small, they're so focused on running the business and they don't take the time to truly understand what crisis communication is supposed to look like or what they're supposed to do in the event of some sort of a crisis, whether it be a a fatality in their organization or, you know, there's so many different crisis situations that can arise. So the fact that you kind of found this passion around helping organizations navigate through those waters is pretty damn impressive. Now, the other thing that I do want to touch on here is the fact that you recognize that's what you wanted to do and that you wanted to start your own PR firm. And you, you didn't just dive into it at first, you started working or you were working for another firm, then you went to work for a startup, then you started your own. Now, remind me, what was that period of time where you were working for another firm, then the startup before you actually started Red Banyan?
1: The first position I was in was seven and a half years in Washington in-house. Then about a year and a half at another firm, then another year and a half working at the startup and then starting Red Banyan. So I've spent almost equal amounts of time. Half of my working career has been gaining the experience and the know-how and working for other organizations. And then the second half has been building my own organization. And, you know, I, I think a lot of business owners or entrepreneurs and, and really even top management people who are in positions of leadership at companies, the, the culture or the why behind what they do is sometimes treated as an afterthought. And from day one, it was really a focal point for me and for Red Banyan. The, the why that motivates my team and me every day is we press the truth. We fight for facts, we believe truth matters, and we're trying to empower our clients to accomplish their goals using communication. Now, the what of what we do is high stakes, crisis comms, positive, proactive, strategic communications. But the fundamental underpinning is our why. And the other thing that I think has been really vital to our success as we've grown and expanded has been basing everything upon our core values. And so at Red Banyan, I don't treat these core values as a hokey poster that you put on the wall and, or something that we talk about once a year at a, at a retreat. These are part and parcel of our organization. They are our DNA. So when I tell you that every single person in my organization knows our core values and understands them, I know that for a fact. We have a huddle every day, 15 minutes, we get the whole team together, and we give each other shout-outs. Every shout-out has to be pegged to one of our core values. Those core values go in every job description that we publish. They're in the interview process. The first conversation we have with a candidate is around those core values. We evaluate and rate our employees based on our core values. We have them on our website. They are part and parcel of who we are. They're also in every proposal that we provide to our clients. They're in every discovery call and presentation that we give. So I think for for organizations and for their leaders, understanding why you do what you do is, in a sense, even more vital than just the what, because you can always adjust what you do or how you do it, but you really need to have a a deep understanding of what motivates you and, and what's driving you.
0: Man, I love that. And I want to get into the whole cancel culture conversation, but I'm latching on to how you are building your business and how you are embedding these core values into your organization. And this is something that I see that a lot of entrepreneurs and startups are usually pretty good at, but as organizations grow and scale, they start to lose sight of those core values. And while they're inevitably stuck on a wall somewhere or on the website, when you start having conversations and just asking random employees, what are our core values, they just get this kind of deer in the headlights look like, "Uh, mm, oh, wait, it's on the wall somewhere over here, right? That's that's not great. And so my question to you is, how comfortable and confident are you and as you continue to scale red banyan that these core values are going to stay embedded in your team in your organization for as long as you're leading it
1: a hundred percent certain and the reason is we arrived at these core values a decade ago and we've made a couple of tweaks through the years only to add and to take away one, one at a time. And, and typically we, we have left these unchanged for the last three and a half or four years. I think we're on the precipice of adding one more core value to the to the list because the team has been talking about it and emphasizing it. And it's it's a discussion that we're having at the leadership level. Mm-hmm. But, you know, this question that you asked, Sean, about... You know How confident am I that I'm going to keep it those core values and, and hue closely to them? My team is worried about this, too, because they know we are on a growth trajectory. We have aggressive goals. And yet, we just had our strategy summit in Fort Lauderdale a week ago. 30 employees from across the country. We all came together for two days of bonding, inspiration, coaching, and strategic planning. And what I heard from my team time and again is... We're excited to grow. We want to be able to help more organizations. We want to expand our footprint globally, but we want to hold on to what makes us unique, our secret sauce. And for us, that's those core values. And just in case you were wondering what they are, we we remember them with the acronym seeker, S-I-C-A-R. So S is for strategy, as a communications agency, We believe strategy has to be at the root of everything we do. So that's why we lead with that core value. The I stands for integrity. Integrity not as in conducting business in an ethical way, telling the truth. Like that should be table stakes for any decent organization. When I say integrity, I mean we have to have the guts and the moral courage to tell our clients if we think they're making a mistake. If they come to us with something that they think is good and we don't think it is, even if it risks pissing them off, we got to tell them straight because that's what it means to live our core value of integrity. The C is a commitment can-do attitude. And to me, that, that means no job too big or too small. You want to give us the impossible task and let us take a crack at it, we'll do it. If you want to see senior executives rolling up their sleeves, emptying trash cans, whatever it takes, If you're going to work with me, you got to have this mentality. There's no job too big, nor is there any job too small. The A is accountability, which I frankly don't care if my teammates make mistakes. Because guess what? We all make mistakes. It's going to happen. The only thing that really gets to me is if the person isn't accountable. If they're not willing to admit they made the mistake and take the steps to learn from it and improve. As long as they're accountable you can make mistakes and we need to be accountable to our clients. And the last is if we do all of those things, it culminates in the R, which is results, which at the end of the day, you know, do our clients hire us because they believe in us, because they trust us, they think we offer best in class service? Yes, but if we're not getting them results, they can and should fire us. So those are our core values. We live them through and through. And, you know, we used to have, as one of our core values, speed. And as we got bigger and we kind of leapt from 10 people up to around 15 or 17 in a year, we decided we were going to dispense with speed because we wanted to make sure that we weren't going too fast and sacrificing quality for the speed. And so we we ended up removing speed as a core value. Now my team raised at the last summit that they really want to see hustle. Incorporated into our core values. So to me, I, I like it, and we're we're actively considering it because speed doesn't necessarily. Um, you can do things too quickly. You can do things too slowly. Hustle to me is speaks more to the mentality and the mindset of our team. So I kind of like it. So mm-hmm. if you have me back on your show next year, I'll tell you probably that we've updated and we've incorporated hustle into our core values.
0: I love it. Oh, man. Okay, such such great core values. And I love your approach and how you bring your entire organization together. And you actually are open to soliciting feedback from the people on the team. And as long as you stick with these core values, you and your organization are continue to grow, continue to be successful. I have no doubt about that. Now, one thing that did stand out to me, that I've actually been thinking through a good bit as I'm building my own business. And that is this can do. And I made a note over here, no job too big or too small. So one of the things that I've had conversations with my team about is whenever we start working with clients and our customers is that it's okay to turn away the wrong kind of work. And yes, there's, there's jobs, there's big jobs, there's small jobs. We want to be able to support our customers. But I think there's also some nuance that you have to pay attention to. And we are a consulting firm. We do a lot of leadership development and then uh, project management, things like that. But what I don't want to do is get into a situation where we are working with a customer where they are not able to do their part, where the customer is not able to take accountability for their own team and their own actions that could potentially put the project at risk that could then reflect poorly on us so i've had conversations with my team saying look if there is too much risk if we're not comfortable with this project we need to feel comfortable with saying this probably isn't the best fit and referring them over to someone else so how do you handle that in your organization
1: yeah it's a great question and every early stage business wrestles with this because in the early days when you're in startup mode you can't afford necessarily to turn away revenue. And so you're you're going to say yes to things, even if they aren't necessarily right in your sweet spot. You're going to figure out a way to do it because you got to you got to make money to keep the lights on to be able to hire a team. And as you grow, I think that's where it becomes more and more important to say no to the ones that aren't a perfect fit. I do think there's a little bit of a process to get to that point. So right when you launch a business, it's very hard to just decide from day one, I think, who you're gonna service and who you're not, who's your customer or not. There's a, a degree of learning that comes from doing. And so I would be nervous about saying to your your listeners, start a business tomorrow, especially a consulting business or professional services, and from day one, start, you know, you're only gonna work with this ideal client profile. You may find that that's not necessarily a winning strategy because you kind of need to get some client, any client, just to get the ball rolling. Mm -hmm. But I do believe in short order, if you want to scale that business, then niching down, finding your real, what do you do really better than anyone else? And what kind of client are you going to be successful for? Because to your point, you don't want to, in your business, take on clients who aren't going to be able to do their part. Because then they could go to someone else down the road and say, well, we worked with Sean and his company and we just we didn't really get the value. Mm-hmm. Now, that may be because they weren't doing their share. They weren't doing the things you were asking of them. But it's not good for your brand. And so I, I agree with you 100%. It becomes vital for organizations to really know who's your customer and who's not. And in my experience, what I've seen is the small clients who are kind of just either on the cusp or outside of your sweet spot, they end up being not worth it because you spend more time, more effort servicing them, getting less of a, um, it it ends up being a less productive engagement. They don't necessarily see the value. You bend over backwards to make them happy. So, you know, my team knows that what I'm always encouraging us to do is to be careful about who we say yes to, to say yes to those clients where we know we can be wildly successful. And also, are they going to be a good fit? Again, it goes back to the core values. In my mind, if we're talking to a prospect and we're outlining our core values to them, and I'm hearing that they don't actually embody or reflect any of those core values, that's problematic. Alarms, alarm bells are going off in my head. And I'm thinking to myself, well, our team is focused on strategy. They sound very tactical. Our team is big on accountability. doesn't sound like they're willing to commit to anything. We have a commitment can-do attitude. They seem like they're going to move at a glacial pace. We may not be the right fit for them. And again, I think it's hard in the early days. I think you've you've got to not cut off your nose to spite your face. You don't need to whittle down or narrow the funnel so much day one because I don't think you, most people know exactly who their target customer is until you gain a little experience. But the sooner you can start to figure that out and then the more disciplined you can be about saying no to those bright, shiny objects or saying no to revenue, um, in the end, my belief is it's going gonna, it's gonna to lead to better outcomes, better results, more referrals, better clients, and ultimately more revenue.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that that completely makes sense. And, and I also recognize whenever I'm having conversations with my team, that yes, while we are a startup, and that might seem odd to turn away revenue, our brand, our reputation is paramount to me as we build this team. And as we build this organization, I want to make sure that we have a brand and reputation for delivering results. And anything that could potentially jeopardize that we we view it through through a microscope to say is this really right for us. And yes, there's kind of you're you touched on something that was very important. A startup, you don't always have the luxury of turning away revenue. Which speaks to the importance of making sure that if you are going off into the realm of entrepreneurship, that you have done your research, you've done your homework, you've saved as much money as possible. Because going into it, you're probably not going to get paid for a pretty good while, or you should at least expect to not get paid for a pretty good while. So there's a lot of preparation that goes into it. So I've got one more question on the entrepreneurship side of things, and then we'll get into your book and some of this other stuff because you spent a number of years working for other organizations, gaining valuable experience so that you could then come to market with your own organization. I think that is an incredible approach when it comes to attainment of skills and knowledge that can be beneficial. Now I've had a number of entrepreneurs come on the show that right out of college, they started a business. I had one come on last week Who out of college, he spent probably a year, year and a half in an organization, said, Yeah, this isn't for me. Started a business, struggled for quite a period of time, and then ended up exiting the business five years later, doing very well for himself. On the flip side, I've seen people that wait till their 40s or 50s to go out and start a business. Seems like you've kind of split that gap. And in your experience, the people that you work with and all the different customers that you have, have you seen pros or cons to starting right, uh, right out of school early in life or waiting until later in life when you've been able to attain and amass all of these valuable skills?
1: Yes. Well, look, there are different types of businesses and there are different types of entrepreneurs and I spend a lot of my time working with an organization called Entrepreneur's Organization, EO, which is a global organization where it's really a peer support network where all of the members, there's a ban on solicitation. So anyone who's in EO is is forbidden expressly from pitching or soliciting business from anyone else in the organization. And that just creates a level of trust and also an understanding that those of us who are in this organization are there to help each other, to provide input, and to be sort of a, a, a board of directors, if you will, to experience, share, not to give them advice per se, but to say, if they, if they ask for it, you know, oh, I hear this problem that you're struggling with, that you're wrestling with, in my experience, this worked for me. So I think having entrepreneurs around you, having people who you trust and respect and people who have been successful in business is one of the, the best ways to shortcut a startup to a scale-up or a startup to success. So th- those, pe- those resources are out there, and whether it's entrepreneur's organization or Vistage or looking into other meetups in your area, I think there's huge opportunities for learning and growth there. Now, some entrepreneurs they know they're entrepreneurs from day one. They're just born with it. You know, there's this this, this sort of mythology that's been created by the mainstream press, uh, which I think leads people down a very dangerous path sometimes, which is we hear about the exceptions to the rule. Not, uh, you know, we hear about the unicorn. We hear about, oh, Bill Gates, he was at Harvard. He dropped out because they couldn't teach him anything. And he started Microsoft and he became the world's richest man. Then Mark Zuckerberg, same thing. He was at Harvard, realized he could do a lot better and became, you know, billionaire in his early 20s uh, and ultimately, you know, mammoth company, global enterprise level, etc. Elon Musk, Richard Branson. You kind of hear these, these legendary larger-than-life figures, but I don't think, I, I believe we can get a lot of inspiration from them and we can learn certainly enormous lessons from them, but I don't think they reflect a realistic outcome for most businesses and most entrepreneurs. Some people just know that they're only going to work for themselves, and that's great. And some have the goal to build a company, scale it, exit it, move to the next thing. And that's one type of entrepreneur. And then, you know, I view myself as as a slightly different version of that. Frankly, I didn't know that entrepreneurship was even an opportunity. I didn't understand that that was available to me. I'd been brought up in a family where I had been told, go to school, get good grades, get into the best college you can, get good grades in college, get the best job you can, and then climb that corporate ladder. And then if, if the time comes where you've, you've maxed out at a position, then you go work for another company and you, you climb the corporate ladder there. So I didn't actually discover entrepreneurial mindset and the opportunities that come with entrepreneurship until I'd already done my first job, which was very corporate, for seven and a half years. And then when I moved into a a small agency, I was working for someone else, and yet I got my first taste of entrepreneurship and entrepreneurial thinking. I think the, the rising generations now, Gen Z, the millennials, I think they have more knowledge and more understanding from day one about the potential upsides to going your own path and being an entrepreneur. There's certainly more resources that are out there, whether you're listening to Way of the Wolf podcast every week, or you're visiting sites online, or you're reading books. We have so much information online that's available to us. In my case, I never could have been as successful in the business that I've built if I hadn't put in those years, those, you know, they talk about 10,000 hours. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell famously made this uh, sort of something that everybody understands that in order to become a master of a certain skill, generally you have to put in 10,000 hours of work at it. And in my case, it was more like 15 or 20,000 hours, but I never could have done what I do at this level if I hadn't, worked at other organizations. And so I do think there's something to be said from gaining experience, from staying at a place longer than kind of what's in vogue now, which is, you know, people get a job six months, a year, a year and a half, they're like, oh, I'm out of here, I've learned what I can. I don't subscribe to that. I actually think that being you don't really even understand what your job is and how to do it until you've been there, generally speaking, for about a year, and then you just start developing and amassing the skills. So. Every journey is different. Everyone has to do it their own way. I do think, in my case, getting that experience, amassing that expertise, it was good that I was able to do that on someone else's dollar and without the risk, per se, of going straight into entrepreneurship. But today, as I look at my life, I feel like I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. And, it, you know, I, I didn't start the business until I was 30, 31 years old. I had a two-year-old and an infant. It was never really a great time, but, you know, thank God, you know, with, with good luck and tremendous effort, um, it's worked out. And, and one of the, the last sort of thing I'll say on this question of entrepreneurship is I do think people have a uh, – you, you get a warped view of what it's going to take to be successful in a business because we like to lionize those who have this hockey stick exponential growth. And so I hear from people all the time, especially over the last couple of years, they're like, "Wow, your business is really taking off!" Or, "You guys are really you're 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 crushing it." It's like, yeah, the first ten years, I was definitely not crushing it. I was. <laughs> beating my brains out every day, working incessantly and coming this close to giving up and seeing the whole thing collapse. So yeah, we're an overnight success after, and I'm having fun now uh, for the past two years after 10 years of being pretty miserable, frankly.
0: You know, I think, I think it was Elon Musk that said the, um, there's this allure of, of entrepreneurship, but really what it comes down to is staring into the abyss and eating glass for the first 10 years or so. And I, I'm sure I butchered the heck out of that, but it's something to that effect and and I can see it. And so the majority of, of my career, I've worked in oil and gas. And so I've been surrounded by entrepreneurs and M&A and integrations and So I've had unique opportunities and experiences to work with entrepreneurs for the past two decades, which has afforded me a chance to learn a tremendous amount from them. Now, I grew up very risk averse. I have been for my entire life, and I'm just kind of at that point now where it's like, okay, this is what I have to do. This is how I can make my impact on the world. So speaking of making impact on the world, your book, The Cancel Culture Curse, From Rage to Redemption in a World Gone Mad. Tell me a little bit about what prompted you to write this book.
1: It's real simple. I do crisis PR for a living. I help good organizations and great people in complicated circumstances. And in the last couple of years, I started getting more and more calls and seeing more and more cases where good people were being accused of terrible things and they were having their livelihoods and in some cases their lives destroyed by mobs of people trying to take them out because they didn't like the way that they conducted themselves or maybe they held an unpopular view. And there's one woman who I would point to in particular who was really, she was the catalyst for this book. Her name is Lisa Alexander. And the story of Lisa I tell in my book, I I put her right front and center. I talk about it in the intro to the book. Uh, At the end of my book, I have four or five case studies where I talk about real life instances where good people were canceled and then how did they overcome it with the goal in mind that I wanted to write this book to expose the practice of cancel culture. And I wanted to help organizations, businesses, entrepreneurs avoid getting canceled in the first place. And then if they find themselves in that unfortunate circumstance, they'll have a playbook and a guide of best practices of how to get themselves out of trouble. And so Lisa's story really spoke to me. And you know, this is a woman who was, was an entrepreneur, is an entrepreneur, and a wonderful person, by the way. I, I just happened to be in San Francisco last week and after talking to Lisa and being, being close to her for years, we became friends during the COVID pandemic. And, and I didn't actually meet her in real life until just last week. And she's, she's an amazing woman. And you know, what happened was she was walking along the streets in San Francisco and it was a time when there was a lot of crime in her neighborhood there were signs everywhere if you see something say something she happened upon a guy who was writing on on a wall outside of a historic home she knew the person who owned the home the guy who was writing on the wall was not that man and she politely asked him pardon me excuse me sir what are you doing you shouldn't write on other people's property now this guy spun around put a camera on her from his cell phone started goading her was very aggressive toward her. Oh, why don't how do you know I don't live here? Why don't you call the cops? Why don't you call the cops on me? Okay? And he he actually filmed her, he forced her, bullied her and the man she was walking with to tell him her name. He refused to give his name. And as she walked off, he took a video of her and he said, "That's Lisa. She's calling the cops." And that ladies and gentlemen, and then he He panned over the wall where he was writing with chalk and it said Black Lives Matter. He said, that's why Black Lives Matter. So he took that video. He hired a PR firm. A couple days later, he scrubbed his his own social media footprint. He used the, the PR firm to put this story out. The story went viral. She became known internationally as San Francisco Karen. Death threats started pouring in. Every business that did business with her cosmetics company dropped them immediately. She was um, subjected to the worst abuse you can imagine. A gang of people doxed her online, released her full name, her address. A mob of people showed up at her house with weapons and threatened her life. She ended up losing her business. It collapsed completely and her body went into shock and she almost died. And so this was a, an instance where cancel culture really did almost kill her. And so when I heard this story about Lisa and I heard the facts and the truth about what happened versus what the media said happened, I realized, you know, I gotta do my part and I gotta tell her story and the story of other people and I've gotta try to prevent this from happening to other people. I make the case in the book, this kind of behavior, this practice of targeting other people for political reasons, or or in order to get clicks and likes and views online, it's fundamentally uh, inhumane, and I believe it's also fundamentally un-American. We believe in free speech, freedom of expression, and to target other people to decide that you don't like something about them, what they've said, or they're done, and you're going to make it your life's mission to ruin them and not afford them another core American thing that we should all enjoy, which is due process. Cancel culture is the opposite. It's, it's conviction and it's execution before the person has even had a chance to defend themselves. And I think it's wrong. I think it's un-American. I think it has to stop. And that's why I wrote the book.
0: Man. Well, I have to commend you because this is such a challenging space for people to navigate. We need more people doing what you're doing. And so, uh, clearly, you're somewhat of an authority in this space. Man, how did we get here?
1: Unfortunately, we got here through a combination of things. It's really a perfect storm that creates this environment where this virus of cancel culture can grow and develop and and spread. And it's, it's a combination of extreme partisanship, So we see that our broken political system where it's really the extremists on the left and the right that drown out the moderate center and they pull certainly our two political parties further apart than they've ever been. We emphasize differences rather than the shared aspects. So I think that there's that's one part of it. I think there's been also these social movements that may have started with the idea or the intention of providing positive change in our society but they quickly morphed and were weaponized to attack other people and this includes black lives matter it includes the b2 movement i think that you know exposing bad practices whether it's it's systematic uh, abuse of people of color or allowing men to abuse positions of authority and to sexually assault or humiliate women obviously reversing that kind of behavior is a good thing now the problem comes in when the accusation is believed instantly to be proof of wrongdoing and so i know that i personally have worked with many people who have been accused of bad behaviors and they didn't actually do those things and so again in a cancel culture world, people aren't afforded the chance to defend themselves. And and these are other, other reasons why it's happening right now. Also the interconnectedness. We all have these things in our pockets, cell phones. Every person is a reporter. They have their video that they can take. They have photos. Also they can access information at all times. And so you've got the interconnectedness, the speed with which news is made. You have a symbiotic relationship between social media and mainstream press. You have the mainstream press breaking down because it's been largely unprofitable for a long time. And so what that's led to is you have less editorial oversight. Things that used to happen, if you, if you had a story that was going to run in a newspaper, a reporter doesn't just write what they're going to write. They get it cleared by the editor. It goes through review process. They checked checked their facts. They checked the sourcing. Well, now there's a race to get content out quickly. And the internet makes that possible. And you've got newspapers who are competing with blogs and other online outlets. And so speed for them is paramount. And when you start going too fast and you don't bother to check the information, all of that can happen and have very deleterious effects. And so, when you take all of that, you take these movements and partisanship, and also people's desire to, you know, the, and, and, and this is one that speaks more to I think a cultural uh, where we are culturally in this country at the moment. We've also started in recent years celebrating victimhood and people racing to see who can be the most victimized, and that mentality that that I'm a victim, and therefore. Cancel culture, attacking other people gives me a chance to strike back. It empowers people who have felt disenfranchised or feel like the world hasn't been fair to them. Uh, That, I think, has also been a psychological driver behind a lot of people jumping on the bandwagon to, to take people out and to try to bring down people with more influence, more money, more success than they have. So it's all of those things all put together. That is why we have cancel culture happening right now.
0: You know, it seems that you touched on something and that is the speed of getting information out and the mainstream media not doing their proper due diligence to vet out the actual facts. It's, oh, this is going to get a bunch of views. This is going to get a bunch of likes. Let's push it out there as quickly as possible. And you you touched on the synergies between social media and the mainstream media and how It very much appears that the social media algorithms, they're focused not so much on the quality or accuracy or truth of the information as much as what gets engagement blasted out there to as many people as possible. And it's almost like, well, if we push this information and push this narrative enough, it then becomes true It doesn't matter if it's actually true or not. It's if we push it enough and then all of these different news sources say it's true, then we make it true. And that, I mean, that's a very real struggle that it's just going to be challenging for us to figure out how to navigate through. Because organizations like yours, it almost appears that you're coming in on the back end of the crisis to try to do damage control. Now, I have no doubt, and I'd actually love your input on How do you get ahead of it? How do uh, people and organizations do the right thing? What do they have to look out for to try to avoid walking down the sidewalk and saying the wrong thing to the wrong person?
1: Yep, it's a great question. I'll give you a couple of concrete tips and then I'll tell you, I'll I'll, I'll lead with this. Go to cancelculture.com because there are resources on that website including how to talk to your kids about safe use of social media and how to talk to your kids about cancel culture. Also a downloadable on that website, 10 steps for people to avoid getting canceled. That's all there. It's all free. Please access it. Please put it to use. I think it'll help you, whatever your industry, whatever your organization. So just go to cancelculture.com and get those resources. Um, obviously, you, you can also look at you know buy the book. You don't. I'm not here to sell my book. I'm here to talk to your your viewers and, and provide hopefully some input that they can that's actionable and concrete and that they can utilize. But if you want to buy the book, it's on Audible. You can you can buy it um, on Amazon anywhere books are sold. And that's obviously got a lot of information in it, a playbook for how to how to deal with these situations. Uh, the other thing to keep in mind is. Social media is where the vast majority of these things start. And so if you want to avoid being canceled, follow these two steps, share with care and post with purpose when it comes to your social media. And by that, I mean, don't reveal too much personal information. Uh, keep in mind, if you're you know, sharing with care means don't necessarily post pictures from your vacation while you're on vacation, because then that just tells everybody you're out of the country, you're out of town your home, your office. It's available. No one's there. Uh, Don't post pictures with your kids necessarily and don't do it in identifying places where they can look and they can see, oh, that's your kid's school in the background. If someone wants to do you harm, now they know where your children go to school. Uh, Unfortunately, it's pretty easy to figure out where people are uh, because people share so much on social media. It becomes very easy. Also, the second part not just share with care but post with purpose before you go and you make any sort of comment online commenting on other people's content producing your own comment your own content think about the view of how what you say is going to land and how are people going to judge what you're putting out there does it present you in the light that is how you want to be viewed as a business person as a community leader as a responsible adult, as a patriotic American, you name it, you know, you need to, before you hit send, before you hit post, think about, just pause a beat and think about how you're you're advancing discourse. Are you looking like a reasonable person or you look like you're a snarky, mean person who's pointing out flaws in someone else? Are you picking a fight with someone? Are you bullying someone? And if the answer is, yeah, I'm not sure, or no, I'm not being very nice, well, then just don't post it. And nine times out of 10, that's the best way to avoid getting into a cancel culture type situation. The other is, it's common sense, but I'm gonna say it anyway, avoid hot button issues, especially from a corporate account. Avoid talking about religion, avoid talking about politics, avoid some of these topics that are at the heart of culture wars in the country, especially at this time. If you do that, You limit the risk of alienating a critical mass of society. And again, people are on edge. They're looking for a reason to get offended, to take things the wrong way. Don't fall into that trap. Don't make it too easy for them. Those are all things that you can do. Now, the other point that you made, Sean, is is a brilliant one, which is sometimes if if you're already getting canceled or you're already getting bad press, it's too late. You know Benjamin Franklin famously said, it, it takes a lifetime to build a reputation and only minutes to lose it. And there have been other people in, in the ensuing hundreds of years who have, who have noted very similar things. And in this day and age, the age of information and cell phones and whatnot, it becomes quicker than ever for an organization or a person to lose their reputation and lose respect publicly. You actually can predict with a high level of certainty what type of crisis your business is likely to experience. Crises are not like lightning. They don't just come out of the sky and strike you. You can usually predict with a high level of certainty where you're going to have problems. And so if an organization is willing to invest on the front end, it's one of these cases where an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. You can prepare in advance. You can map out and have a crisis management plan so that if and when you do face a crisis, and it is a matter of when, not if, because it's just inevitable in this day and age, then you at least have done some of the key things you need to do. You've determined where are you most vulnerable. Have you patched up the areas where you're most likely to take a hit? Have you decided in advance who's going to constitute your crisis management team? Who's going to be your spokesperson? How are you going to funnel media inquiries? How are you going to know whether or not you're engaging with the press or not? Do you have a crisis PR firm on standby? Maybe you've even retained them and you've built a relationship with them so when you have a problem, you know exactly who to call. These are all things that organizations can do in advance so that they're not online Googling looking for crisis PR help when CNN is already knocking down their door looking for comment on a story that's going live in 30 minutes.
0: Yeah, that's such a great point. And one of the things that um, my company has actually started doing is working with our customers on putting together crisis management plans. And you know, it's a pretty, I'm going to say standard framework, and it's gonna, there's gonna be nuances for each organization and company. But one of the things that is vitally important is making sure you have a good PR firm to lean on. And I've encountered this in the past where their default is, "Oh, well this company does our website and our marketing, we're just going to use them." <laughs> and I, and I see you kind of chuckling because that is not their skill set. Just because they can design a website does not n- mean they know how to navigate a crisis and what you should disclose or not disclose publicly. So for all of you listening that have large organizations and a crisis management plan, your marketing company is not the same as a PR firm like Evan and his company that can actually help you navigate through these things. So,
1: fun. Do you, do you know how to drive a car? Yes. Okay. Does that make you an F1 driver? It does not. Are you prepared to get in a car and go 250 miles an hour around a hairpin curb with other cars all around you?
0: I am not prepared, but it would be fun.
1: It would be a blast. Now, being you know, getting your PR firm, your generalized PR firm or your marketing firm to be your crisis PR firm will not be a blast. It will not be fun because the worst thing that you can do when you get into a crisis is to compound your misery by making another mistake. And the reason is you get when you get in a crisis, all eyes are on you. The margin for error moves from being Whatever it is in day-to-day life, to being razor thin, you cannot afford when you're already under fire. Maybe it's something you haven't done. You're being falsely accused. Maybe you have made a mistake, and you're trying to set things right. But you cannot afford when you're under scrutiny to make another mistake. And the problem for a lot of companies is they go with who they know, and they work with their marketing firm or their their marketing firm or their PR firm. Goes, oh yeah. Crisis management, we can do that. It's kind of like if, if you're having chest pains, you don't go to your general practitioner. You get in to see your cardiologist because that's what they do all day, every day. So all PR firms are not the same. And when you get into a crisis situation, you're going to want a firm that really knows and specializes in that. And if they don't do that, or it's, a, they, it's kind of a bolt-on service, or it's one of 15 different capabilities they have on their website, my advice would be, Don't just go with who you know, actually look for someone who specializes in it. It's the same way where, you know, if your kid gets sick, you want to you want a specialist. You don't want a general practitioner. And the same is true uh, if your business or your reputation is is showing signs of, of sickness or you're under fire.
0: Yeah, that's such a great point, Evan. So as we start to kind of wind this down, what is one of the biggest things that you would like to share with the audience that can protect them or help them out?
1: Be smart, be measured. Don't rush to get in the thick of things. Um, If there's a hot topic that's causing a lot of angst, think about whether or not getting in there on that discussion advances your overall business goals. And if it takes you away from your core business, why get in that? You don't need that hassle, and, and it's not worth it. So a lot of it is common sense. A lot of it is discipline. And just being willing to put that phone down or, or fight that that urge. Here, here's another concrete thing that I hope your listeners will take to heart, and that is this – This and, and you touched at the very beginning of our conversation saying, you know, crises come in all different forms, and that's true. What constitute a crisis – For you, it could be one person giving you a negative review online and saying a bad thing about your company. Uh, For another company, it could be a a glass door assessment by a former employee saying, oh, the 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 CEO's a a jerk and he's stupid. Uh, For another company, it could be something much more serious where there's been a crime committed or they're under investigation or there's litigation that's about to happen. So crises come in all different shapes and sizes. Um, and I lost the train of thought of where I was going with this, but I'm I'm coming back to it now, which is, um, you'd ask me what, what the the question was, what, what should people avoid or what's one thing that they can do? Um, man, I really completely, uh, so you see, I'm, I'm experiencing a crisis right now in this moment because I'm live on your podcast and I totally lost track of what I was saying. But like all, uh, like all situations, you can navigate your way out of it. And so I just think people need to exercise caution, be aware, think about the strategic implications of what you're doing and just make good decisions and and try to be kind and thoughtful to other people. Try to put your business first and not feel this, this urge to jump into whatever the hot debate is or the topic of conversation again share with care, post with purpose, be disciplined and, and try not to expose yourself needlessly if you don't have to.
0: Evan, thank you. Very, very helpful for all of you listening. What is the best way for people to contact?
1: Yeah. And I told you, I was going to remember what I was going to say. And here's (laughs) actionable thing that I hope everyone on this podcast will do. And that is if you get a negative review or negative feedback, Do not ignore it. Do not leave it out there unanswered. And this matters for every company, every organization, every industry. And what you want to keep in mind is the person who disparaged you, who complained about you, who gave you a one star, you're not going to win him or her over. They've already decided they don't like you and they don't want to do business with you again probably. What you're doing is you're responding so that the rest of the world, a limitless audience, sees you behaving in a responsible, measured, mature, and thoughtful way. So respond to that negative review, that negative feedback, but do it from a, a place of being dignified, not necessarily going right at, going back at the person. You know, if they're not really a customer, then by all means say, oh, this person isn't, it's funny, they're complaining about our service, they're not even a customer of ours. We can show that this isn't anyone we've ever done business with. undercut their credibility immediately but if in fact they are a customer or a client then go ahead and just you know apologize only if there's something that you've done that warrants an apology if not position yourself as just a measured company that's trying to not leave negative allegations or falsehoods unchallenged that's what i wanted to make sure that everyone walks away with and if you want to stay in touch with me i welcome the opportunity to continue the conversation you can find me on Twitter, also known as X. I'm at Evan Neerman. You can look for me on LinkedIn. You can find me just by Googling Red Banyan and connecting with us, whether it's Instagram, Facebook, you name it.
0: All right, Evan, thank you so much. For all of you watching, watching this or listening, we'll have all of Evan's contact information. Go check out his book, this is a very real topic that we all need to be aware of how to navigate through these waters the best way for us to do that is to arm ourselves with knowledge and stay ahead of it don't wait until the back end to to where you're fighting these fires after the fact arm yourself with knowledge figure out what you need to do reach out to evan work with his company buy his book all of these things That is all we have for the show today. Thank you so much, and y'all have a good one.